I'm going to uh, give you the opportunity again. I'm going to preach another post-it sermon this morning. And I think my sticky tabs are probably a little better quality. If you care to tear one off, this is only voluntary. And it's open to anybody that has the ability to write. And uh, write down an inspiration from the devotional, the Psalms, the Sunday School, the sermon. And uh, there's a poster board on the back wall there by the cabinet. After you have uh, been inspired, you can post there and share that inspiration. It's kind of like a testimony time without vocally sharing that testimony. So, uh, and uh, be sure and look at the photo at the top of the poster board. I'm uh, going to be sharing this morning. Remember, if you remember when I preached the last time, my uh, posted sermon was, uh, I gave you the story behind the the uh, posted invention, the 3M man that by mistake invented the, the glue that was supposed to be uh, used in the aerodynamic industry, supposed to be extremely strong, and instead, instead it came out very weak. And uh, quite a few years, 15, 20 years later, later posted notes were invented. And uh, so we have that blessing today, posted notes. And they're, they're used as reminders for us. And this morning I want to remind you of some of the promises in Psalms 23. And that's the title of my meditation this morning, Promises of the Shepherd. Psalms 23, the most familiar, probably, passage of Scripture that is known the world o'er. And uh, so I want to remind you of some of those promises, and that's why I thought about the posted aspect again. I thought, well, I'm going to give you that opportunity. My wife said, well, don't wear out a good thing. And uh, she's not here this morning. She has a bad cold. And, uh, but she did furnish me with some better post-it notes. You remember the last time there were, I think she told me later, she said, if you told me you were going to do that, I'd give you something better. Those were like six, seven years old, and were not very sticky anymore, and I had to actually stable them up. So as if they do not stick on the post-it board back there, I do have a stapler in my mailbox. Feel free to uh, take the stapler and, and just punch them on. If the, stick it, uh, if the 3M lets us down, use the stapler, okay? Uh, well, I was going to talk about the photo at the top of the posted board. Uh, they are three, pardon me, two young North Dakota shepherd boys there with their flock of sheep. Uh, so uh, I have a special interest in those shepherd boys. Happen to be my grandsons. Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The promises of the shepherd psalm here are, are rich and full of meaning. The first thing I notice that this is a choice, the single most important choice that any human sheep slash human sheep can make. You know, there's is to choose to be a sheep of the good shepherd. You know, I, as I read this psalm, I thought, you know, there's, it, it's so basic. There's no fine print. There's no dotted line to sign. You only need to embrace it by faith and believe it and make that choice. Uh, I was just, this week, I was, uh, one of the things that happened, 
you know, you get legal documents and it's, it's just full of pages and pages of sometimes fine print. And one of my CEM mutual aid people called me and they said, Warren, they said, we need you to fill out a form, a Missouri Department of Revenue form number 331. And I said, well, okay, I, I don't know if I ever filled any of them out before. And uh, I said, I don't, tell me, you know, tell me about it. And he said, well, I really don't know how much about it, but he said, my accountant is telling me you need to fill this out. And I said, well, okay, fax me a copy of this, and, uh, and I'll take a look at it. That's Missouri, form, Missouri Department of Revenue Form 331. And uh, he wanted, his accountant wanted us, to, wanted us to fill it out. And there's a lot of legal jargon on there and a place for us to sign. And it's basically a surety bond. And uh, I had never encountered it before, and I, I wasn't sure what to do with it, so I called Mike, who, who seems to be pretty up to snuff on what to do. So I called Mike Martin. I said, what do you know about this? And he said, hmm. He said, I'm not sure. He said, I don't know that I ever encountered it either. But he said, I know contractors got to be sometimes licensed, insured, and bonded. And he said, I'm thinking that's what they're coming after you for. They want to know that CM Mutual Aid has actually got the financial backing that uh, they say they do. And to operate in the state of Minnesota, he was doing some business in Minnesota, in, in, sorry, Missouri, they're saying he had to have some, some surety to, to confirm that we are who we are. And, but Mike said, you know, he said, maybe you better call Thad, who is our, our mutual aid president. He said, call Thad and see what he says. I told Thad what, was, what it, uh, had transpired and what we talked about, and I, I said, what do you think? And he said, well, he said, let me research it. He said, let me pull it up in line. And he looked at it and uh, called me back later and left a message. We actually did not talk together. He said, really? This is in a, in a nutshell what he told me. He said, uh, we're not an insurance company. He said, therefore, we are not uh, regulated by any of the insurance laws in any of the states. And he said, that's why we are a mutual aid. We operate simply as a mutual aid, a post-assessed mutual aid. And he said, we, basically, that's an insurance company uh, regulation that the insurance companies have to file uh, to give a, a confirmation that they are legally binding for that. And we do not do that as mutual aid. We just simply by word of mouth, our yay is yay and our nay is nay, we're standing to be together as brethren in the Lord that we're going to support you if you have a loss. And, of course, the world, our culture today has trouble understanding that. And, uh, you know, sometimes those forces clash. And so he said, you're not going to have to tell those people that uh, we are are not we are not what they think we are or what they're surprised what they think we might be or surmising we are and I so I called the brother back and I told him I said well you know this is for an insurance company he said yeah you know right he said we didn't talk about this before didn't we <laughs> and so he was very accepting of it I said you know if you want me to talk to your accountant you give me the number of his accountant said if you want me to talk to him I'd be glad to explain to him how we work and what happens and how it functions but uh, it seems like it uh, has taken care of itself. So uh, probably just a formality is my guess, and uh, they seem to be satisfied with it. So, But, you know, I, I thought of that in relation to this psalm here, Psalms 23. You know, there's, you think of, you know, there's not a lot of fine print. It's very straightforward. Uh, is there any fine print in the Bible? You might say, well, it's all fine print. But, you know, really, it's all, it's all straightforward. We accept it by faith, and we embrace it. We teach it, and we live it. We need to live it. And uh, so it's, there's nothing hidden. It's all open to be understood, even by some of the very youngest children. And to me, that's, that's precious. I don't know how old David was when he penned his psalm. I, I picture him as being fairly young, youthful perhaps. 
But uh, again, it's, uh, it's a very precious psalm. The pro- one of the promises that I want to point you to is the first promise that I want to point you to is that he will be your shepherd if you will be his sheep. How good am I at following? You know, a shepherd, sheep, we are not naturally inclined to, to forage and go our own way, typically speaking. Am I easy to be led? These are just some of the questions I'm asking myself as I think of myself as a sheep. Uh, David, you know, sheep, uh, animals in particular, I don't work with sheep. I really don't know that much about sheep, but I know more about cows. And, uh, you know, they have a way of, of teaching us. They really do. Uh, I've learned more in the last probably 38 years than, uh, you know, just from my working with cows. Uh, you know, they, well, they just, uh, they teach you so many lessons. <laughs> Uh, not that we don't learn lessons otherwise. Uh, maybe I'm making it sound like if you don't have cows, you're a notch below. But, you know, that's not the case. <laughs> Let me be conceited, okay? <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, the decision-making belongs to the shepherd, okay? As sheep, we need to follow. And I, as I look at as I work with animals, you know, the decision-making, as I take care of my charges, my cattle, they, they just simply trust me. Uh, you know, sometimes there's some that challenge my authority, but, you know, uh, I need to sometimes, you know, look at myself and say, well, why are they reacting the way they are? Uh, you know, they don't, the more boring things are for cattle, and I, I assume sheep are the same way, probably the, the less stressful it is for them. They like things that are boring. Uh, I went down the other morning to... Uh, it was dark, and I had went down to check the, the dry cow pen to see if it, there was one that was due to freshen. And uh, she was, we have an open a lot pen there inside where the close-up fresh ones, you know, often calve. And I had my flashlight in the dark. I didn't turn on the lights, and I was shining to see. I, there was one there. She was sleeping soundly. She had her head. She only had an ear tag in one ear, but I'm sure that's who it was. But she had that ear tucked back around, so I couldn't see her ear tag. But she was sound asleep. Well, I wanted to make sure that's who it was, so I walked over to her and, and pulled her ear up to look at her ear tag, and she never woke up, stayed sleeping. She was, she was comfortable, and she was trusting. And, uh, you know, she was, uh, I could see her eyelids were fluttering. I don't know if it's Kyle's dream or not, but, you know, <laughs> she, was, she was out. And, uh, you know, so she was comfortable. She was, she was sleeping. She was trusting me for her care and for her provision. And uh, so it was the cow who I thought it was. But the promise number one, God, Jesus will be your shepherd if you will submit yourself to allow yourself to be led by him through the pathway of life. And again, that means allowing him to lead through the decisions, the difficulties, the problems that you and I encounter. The decision making belongs to the shepherd. That's in verse number one. The Lord, the psalmist here is making it personal. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And that's my second promise. I shall not want. (coughs) Someone has suggested, (coughs) pardon me, someone has suggested that the largest prison uh, in the world today is the prison of want. Discontentment. Could it be that you and I are in that prison of discontentment and want and don't realize it this morning? You know, discontentment is, is is abounding in our culture, in our world today, at a level that I think is, is far beyond we've ever seen before. It, it's our culture. It's part of our capitalistic consumer, consumerism, consumerism, 
culture that we live in. Discontentment. You're not satisfied until you have this, until you have that. And I'm sad to say that maybe, many times we get caught up in that same trap too. Discontentment. I was impressed. Someone has said this. There's two things we need to remember about things and stuff. And we all have stuff. We all have things. He said this. He said, first of all, we need to realize that things and stuff is not ours to begin with. It's not. Where did it come from? God gave it to us. The second thing we need to remember is that stuff and things are not really you. Okay? The car you drive, the clothes you wear are really not you to a certain degree. God tells us in the Scripture, He looks on the heart. He looks at the inward man. That's you. Uh, now, I believe there's an, there's an outward portrayal of that to a certain degree. I believe if we're humble, I believe if we're modest, I think that's a display of that. So, in a certain sense. But on the other hand, we cannot... The world, on the other hand, embraces the fact that you've got to make yourself somebody. And that's why we, we allow discontentment, discontentment to become to get a hold of us. We, we think we've got to change our identity. We've got to be somebody that we're really not. And, uh, you know, the story is told of uh, one of the wealthiest men in history, John D. Rockefeller. And when he died, as, his, uh, as he left, died and left a vast estate, his accountant was asked, he said, what did John D. Rockefeller leave? And you know what his accountant's reply was? He said, all of it. All of it. I was going to Google and see if I, what his worth was. I don't know what his worth was, but he was one of the wealthiest men in history. But the fact is he left it all. Every bit of it. Didn't take any of it along with him. Life isn't defined by what you have. God sees your heart. God sees your life. And he wants to make it. He looks at your compassion. He looks at your devotion. He looks at your honesty and integrity. And we have in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, he says, even a cup of cold water that is given in the name of Jesus Christ. God sees that. God sees those things that would so much define our lives rather than what our culture and our world would say. I shall not want. Can you embrace that with confidence this morning that I will not want? You know, there's so many uncertainties that we face in our world today and we can get ourselves in a tizzy. But to lay claim to that promise that if God is our shepherd, we shall not want. Well, the third promise is in verse 3. The promise of rest. Green pastures and still waters. The promise of rest. Someone has estimated it affects 70 million Americans. Um... It's faulted for 38,000 deaths, 100,000 auto accidents annually. Insomnia? Is that how you say it? Insomnia. There you go. I knew I wasn't saying it quite right. Insomnia. Uh, and that's why I passed out the little sticky tabs. If God blesses you with insomnia while I'm preaching this morning, well, maybe you can <laughs> pen down an inspiration that you can share. You know, our culture today is, is plagued with that the inability to sleep, the inability to rest. People need to rest in the care of the Good Shepherd. And I think that's what the psalmist was challenging us with here in, in verse 3, that third promise, or in verse 2, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Our minds are tired. Our bodies are tired. And perhaps more importantly, our souls are tired. 
We work. There's money to be made. There's degrees to be earned. There's ladders to be climbed. And we sometimes idolize, you know, Thomas Edison from history again. He claimed to be able to live on 15-minute naps, intervals. And he was a great inventor. But, on the other hand, we sometimes forget Albert Einstein. He was a great mathematician. It's said that he averaged 11 hours of sleep a night. Uh, well, I know we have different personalities. We have different sleep needs. I don't know what your level of sleep need is, but we do need sleep. We, need, we do need rest. And I think that's the reason why God has given us a day of rest and worship today. It's estimated that in 1910, Americans averaged nine hours of sleep, and today that average is down to closer to seven hours of sleep a night. Well, I don't know where you fit in. I'm, not, I'm just asking you. I'm just challenging you that I believe resting in Christ, resting in the Lord, resting in the Good Shepherd can be short or it can be long, but it needs to be it needs to be experienced at the hand of the Good Shepherd. You know, it's not green pastures and still waters that I have provided or that we have provided. It's from being led there by the Shepherd. Let's rest. Let's make that our experience that we truly can rest in the Lord. I'm going to go back to the book of Hebrews for a verse that's very challenging to me. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 that is a verse that gives us encouragement. Hebrews 4, verse 16 tells us this. It says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That means that there's life in itself is bigger than us. We need rest. Yes. We need green pastures. We need still waters. But... More than all that, we need the leading of the Good Shepherd. And it's challenging us here to, and this comes back to our Sunday school lesson, some of the truths that else was laying down. We need to come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is there to help us to experience that rest. I believe the promise of hope he restoreth my soul and he leads me in the paths of righteousness. The shepherd doesn't uh, give us hope by removing us from this dark world. He gives us himself. And we could turn to the New Testament, to John 10, that good shepherd passage. And I'm going to just turn to that John 10. I want to read verses 1 through 14. Jesus here portraying himself to the disciples and the, the multitudes. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. The parable, This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were, which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus is that rest. Jesus is that door. 
All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hareling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hareling fleeth, because he is an hareling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. He gives himself for us. He will be there for us until the end of time. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. We can depend on the good shepherd until the very end of time. It tells us this in the uh, Matthew 28, verse 20. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Jesus is there for us unto the end of the world. Jesus is still functioning as the good shepherd. He restoreth my soul and leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The path of righteousness is accessed through the straight gate that we read about in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I'll just flip back to that. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, gave that illustration uh, at the, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verses 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. The path of righteousness, I like to say, is accessed through that straight gate this morning. The path of righteousness is a path that reaches to the skies. David Father Owen in Psalm 71.19 says, His righteousness reaches to the skies. That path of righteousness will take us beyond this life. And then also in Psalms 112, verse 3, it says that righteousness endures forever. And so as we follow on that path of righteousness that he wants to lead us there in verse 3, there's no room for arrogance. It says it's for his name's sake. It's for his glory. No room for self-arrogance or pride on that road, on that path of righteousness. Humility is a must for being led in the path of righteousness. Charles Spurgeon, to one of his overconfident student ministers, had this to say. Who was His student minister was stepping up to the podium to preach, but failed very miserably. And in self-confidence, he had ascended up. In humility, he came back off the podium. Spurgeon told him, if you had gone up as you had came down, you would have come down as you had went up. And uh, I, I like Spurgeon's uh, way of putting it there. We need to, uh, in humility, it's not my presentation this morning. It's not my story. It's God's program. doesn't matter if it's the devotions or the songs, the Sunday school lesson or the sermon. It's God's message that we share with you this morning. And we are only the mouthpiece. Our lives are only what they are by the grace of God. And... Uh, he is the good shepherd. It's because of what he has done in my life. And the world needs to see that. It's not who I am, but it's who God is. Do we give that credit to him? Well, the fourth promise that I see in this psalm is the promise of seeing us safely home. 
He says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I had to think of the New Testament, uh, John 14, where we have the account there. I think we talked about that maybe this morning. <coughs> Excuse me. John 14, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. God is coming back again sometime. Jesus is coming back again. The promise of, of taking us home. And we have that promise there in John 14. You know, I think it's interesting. Someone makes this uh, observation. He says that Jesus makes that personally, that yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. He doesn't sense necessarily... He's there with us personally through that valley of the shadow of death. He may send ministers to inspire us. He may send teachers to guide us. He may send physicians to heal us. But when it comes to passing through the valley of the shadow of death, I believe we can expect the presence of Jesus through that experience. Um, you know, it's, I, was, I, I reflected back, and I have no idea how many years ago this was. I was probably, I don't know, Eight, seven. I remember there was an accident. Uh, Weaver Star Silo built, used to build poured concrete silos from Myerstown. I don't know if they're still in business or not today. I don't know if they are or not. But uh, I remember there was uh, an accident. These two young Mennonite boys were the same ages as my older siblings. That's why I kind of remember it. One was Charles Fox and the other one was uh, David Erb. Something happened. They were building a silo, and something happened to the scaffolding that they were, they were pouring this poured concrete silo. Something left loose, and these two boys were, I don't even know, remember the height or a lot of the details, but I know they fell. And uh, I don't think they came the whole way down, but they came quite a ways, and they, they were, one I think, I think David Herb maybe was killed instantly, or pretty well right away, and uh, Charles Fox uh, was, uh, lived for a, maybe a few days, but uh, he later succumbed to the injuries from that accident as well. But his father, uh, Harvey Fox Sr., was my music teacher in uh, school. And this, this would have uh, taken place, but I remember the incident happening. He was, this would have been probably another five or six, seven years later. And he was telling us about that incident. This, actually, these two boys, one would have been his son, and one actually would have been his son-in-law. So, you know, it, was, it, was, it hit him personally. We were having music class, and I think it had something to do with one of the songs that we were singing that day. Uh, he was telling us about his son. He said, I was there by my son's bedside, and he said he kind of drifted in and out of consciousness, and uh, this, this young boy was in, in the prime of life, we'd say, and he, you know, he was, his father was sitting there, and you know, they probably knew the end was near. And he, he'd come and he told him some different things. He'd sometimes tell him some things. And one of the things that I particularly mentioned, he said, uh, Daddy said, my, my, the keys to my car are in my top dresser drawer. And, uh, and there was another time, I think he said he mentioned that he remembered hearing some singing. And I, I'm thinking, if I remember correctly, that the song that we were singing that day was the song that he said he heard being sung. Whether that was, you know, uh, something that was replaying in his mind or not, I, I don't know. But uh, I've never forgot that incident as Harvey Fox Sr. shared that with us as a class. You know, as, you know it, was, it was kind of uh, uh, one of those experiences that you realize that, you know, here's somebody that has, has experienced extreme loss. 
and uh, you know it was five or six years later, so I imagine that you know the pain of that loss was uh, somewhat gone. But someone has said, as we think about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you know, it's life can be kind of like a trampoline. Have you ever been on a trampoline? You know, the closer you are to the person that's, you know, you can sit around. We used to have one at home. And, uh, you know, the person that, maybe there was one person in the center doing the jumping, and there's people sitting around. The further out you are, the less the movement is. But, you know, and, and someone described it like a tra- life like a trampoline. Said the closer you are to the, to the person that is doing the action or that is taken from your life, you know, it's, it's kind of like that. You, it impacts you more. And, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, that's the way life is. You know, if the closer we are. Uh, to those people that are that are taken from our presence, you know, the more acutely we feel that loss. And uh, you know, maybe those of us that are out on the surrounding perimeter of the trampoline, maybe we sure we notice it, we, we feel it, but it's not like you were right next to that person. Um, you know, in God's plan, every life is long enough, and every death is in His time for His frame, or in His time frame rather. But uh, I was impressed as I thought about it from this aspect. It says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Dr. Dr. Barhouse said, 2,000 years ago, Christ faced death for you and me. Today, we only need to face it as a shadow. He has taken away. Jesus, uh, Paul writing to the first Corinthians in chapter 15 says, He has taken away the sting of death. Today, we don't have to face death as Christ, faced it, as Christ faced it. We only face it as a shadow of something passing, fleeting. Uh, and it's because of what he has done on Calvary. It's because of his, his uh, taking away the sting of sin and death. I only need to face it if we embrace Jesus as our shepherd today. We only need to face it as a shadow, a fleeting shadow. The psalmist David, notice what his comfort was in. It was in the shepherd's rod and staff. And also his, his focus was on the presence of the shepherd. He says, Thou art with me. He laid claim to that promise that the presence of the shepherd was going to be with him through that valley of the shadow of death. Thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. Those tools of the shepherd that he used for guidance, are they a comfort to us? The fifth promise that I have is God's promise of care and provender for us. Notice it says in verse 5, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. I look at that as abundance, a table prepared, uh, anointing, cup full, and running over. Have you counted your blessings recently as the songwriter challenges us many times? We sing that, that song, Count Your Many Blessings. Uh, contentment with the shepherd again should be our experience. It said an old ancient Eastern custom was as long as when you were visiting with someone, as long as they kept filling your cup and overflowing it, the stay was welcome. But once they left your cup run dry, it was time to leave. And uh, as I think of what David is saying here, he says, My cup runneth over. God desires our presence. He keeps filling our cup. He wants to fellowship with us. He wants to interact with us. God continues to fill our cup to overflowing. Our relationship with Him is always welcome. 
Well, the sixth promise that I'd like to remind you of is in verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I've entitled this promise, The Promise of Not Giving Up. I, that's, a, that's a precious promise to realize that God does not give up on any one of us. God continuously... I want to just remind you of a few. God didn't give up on Adam and Eve. You know, He could have wrote them off there in the garden. But you know what He did? He came to them and He said, Where are you? He wouldn't have had to do that. You know what? He didn't give up on Moses. You know, Moses thought he had it all figured out and was going to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. You know what he did? And he slew that Egyptian and he was ready to get to work and do it. And then he realized that it was all wrong. His people rebelled against him and they were ready to fight with him. And so he went on the backside of the Sinai Desert. And God there started a mysterious fire in that burning bush. And he stopped Moses. And he told Moses, said, you know, I've got something for you to do. He didn't give up on Moses. Oh, he didn't have it all right the first time, but he didn't give up on him. That's okay. We don't get it all right the first time either, do we? At least I don't. Well, he didn't give up on Jonah. There's another example. Jonah, he, God wanted him to be a mouthpiece. Jonah said, well, I can't do that. I'm never going to do that. They're going to, you know, I don't know what all they'd have done to him. He was, you know. And so he rent the opposite direction. Where did God meet Jonah? Down in the belly of a whale. He met him. And then Jonah was ready to go. Well, he didn't give up on Peter either. There's so many examples in the Scripture. You know, Peter, one of the closest outspoken disciples of Jesus, denied him thrice, tried to fight the battle with the sword. God came back to him and said, Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to be a shepherd. Well, he didn't give up on Paul either. Paul? You know, he was, a, he was a real murderer. He was a real slaughterer. You know, someone raised the question and said, do you think Paul ever met any of the widows that he made? Any of the orphans that he made? The Christians that he was responsible for? You know, think how that you feel. Uh, but God didn't give up on him. He struck him down on the Damascus Road and said, with a bright light, said, Paul, Paul, I want to use you. And I'm confident this morning that God will not give up on any of us, any of you. God wants to use you and I. It doesn't matter if you're young. It doesn't matter if you're old. You know, getting old, uh, it's a learning experience. I'm partway through getting old. <laughs> uh, I did like this thought, though. Aging and getting old isn't fun. Uh, someone has suggested that... Uh, we need to think of it as God's way of keeping us headed home. Aging is God's way of keeping us headed home. Now, I believe that's part of the fall. I believe that's some of the result of the fall, some of the result of the fall in the Garden of Eden. But, you know, if we were always youthful, you know, it's we have a hard, we have a hard enough time sometimes letting go of things. But, you know, when we get old, I think it's easier to get let go of things. At least I hope that's my experience. And the older I get, the less I, the less I want to relax my grip. You know, we, we can't change the process of, of aging. It's a part of life. You know, they always talked about change. You know, this congregation, how much it has changed over the past years. And uh, used to be I was one of the younger ones. Uh, you know, we can't change that process, but, you know, we can change our attitude toward that process. And I'd like to suggest this morning, as we age... And even if you're just a youth this morning, life goes fast. Even if you're just a young person, you're one step closer home. 
Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's God's desire for every soul here this morning, that each one of us would arrive home with Him and be able to dwell with Him forever. Is that your desire this morning? It's a challenge I want to leave with you this morning. As we think of those promises of the psalmist this morning, may it be an inspiration through the coming week. And if you remember and desire, post your inspirations on the board in the back. And 